This past week, Cindy and I went up to the Twin Cities. I think it was Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. And we went up to watch a baseball game. And that's very loosely defined when seven-year-olds are playing it. But it was interesting to me that evening, we were looking on my phone. How many of you check the weather on your phone regularly? And we see this little thunderstorm warning thing back home. So what we did was right away I got on the phone and I called Sam, or Sam, Luke, Ethan. I probably called them all. I'm not sure. But I think primarily Ethan. I said, could be a thunderstorm coming. And I said, get the plants, the hanging plants. Put them down on the floor. Protect them. Do all these things. And I was thinking this morning about when, the, when a tornado siren goes off or we get that beeping thing if you happen to be watching TV. What's the first thing we do? We pay attention. And if it's a tornado warning and it's in your area, what do you do? Unless you're a man, you go standing in the driveway. But if you have any common sense at all, you go to the basement, right? You make preparations. You get ready. There's a warning. We have a warning. Devastation can be coming. Well, I want you to remind, be reminded this morning that the book of Revelation is a stronger warning signal than anything we're going to receive in the natural. It's easy to fall into the thinking that it's a story or it's somehow or other not real, or somehow or other it's everything symbolic and it's not going to be really as bad as it could be made the sound to be. It's going to be worse. I can't even explain how bad it's going to be. It is a warning signal given by God through John on the island of Patmos for us. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. There is no doubt that it's coming. Now, we can get complacent and say, well, it's been a long time. It must be going to be a long time. We don't know when it's coming. We do know it's sooner than it was when John got this vision, like 2,000 years sooner. So we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. Now, I've been saying all along as we're going through this that people have different positions on different things in the book of Revelation, you know, starting with when the rapture occurs. So if you're one of those who thinks you've got to go through the whole tribulation before you get raptured um, be ready but if you're like me and you believe that the church is taken up in revelation chapter 4 before the tribulation begins we need to rejoice but we need to join with the holy spirit in sounding the warning that there is going to become a time when there is no more time to make a decision. As I said last week, no decision is a decision to reject Jesus Christ. And for those who reject Jesus Christ, there's going to come a time when hearts are hardened. And I can't predict, and neither can you, when a heart may become hardened as we continually ignore the promptings of the Holy Spirit, ignore the grace of God, and reject Christ, thinking that maybe someday we're going to continue on in Revelation this morning. We're going to look at chapter 15 and part of chapter 16, Lord willing. But I want to just do a quick step back into chapter 14. If you remember, chapter 14 was part of what we've been calling an interlude or a um, parenthesis, a parenthetical time in the Scripture where it's not chronological. It's kind of giving a broad overview of what's taking place. In chapter 14, it kind of went all the way from the beginning of tribulation up to the middle of tribulation, really focused on the last three and a half years of tribulation. 
leading up to those, those horrible words about the wine press. The blood flowing up to the bridles of the horses in a valley over 200 miles long. In chapter 15 and 16, it's like John is now going back and to give us more clarity into this broad overview. We are starting now to get back into chronological order in chapter 15 and 16. The interlude is over. And now it's time to go forward. And really, if you read through it, if you've been studying it as we go, it's time to really put your seatbelts on because it's going to get really fast what's taking place. It appears to me that, that when we get to the bowls of judgment, the seven bowls or seven bowls, well, it appears it's like a hammer pounding in a nail. It's just going to come one after the other, after the other, after the other. There's going to be no break in between. They're going to be still recovering from the first bowl when the last bowl comes. It's going to be horrible. A horrible, horrible time to be on earth. It's the execution when we see in, in verse or chapter 15, it is actually like a prelude building up to chapter 16. And what we're going to see here is God's final judgment is going to be being described. And it's going to be horrifying, but it's going to be preparing the way for the return of Jesus. And I believe as much as anything in chapter 15, it's a reminder for us and a declaration for us that the wrath of God comes out of His holiness. God's not just getting revenge. This whole thing is part of a plan that's been established before the foundations of the world just like our salvation. And there is going to come a time when we're going to even read the words, it's now finished. We heard those words when Jesus was on the cross. And when Jesus declared or spoke those words, it is finished. He wasn't just talking about His life on earth in the way that we knew it. He was talking about the conclusion of God's plan for redemption. It was finished. It all had a purpose and was part of a divine plan. And we're going to see that same thing taking place here. We're going to read the words, it is finished in regards to the wrath of God. And it's telling us that everything that needed to be done before the return of Jesus will have been completed when those words are spoken. The holiness of God. And I, just, I want to repeat that because sometimes you know, people get into this mindset that a loving God couldn't do these things. A kind and merciful God couldn't do these things. A just God has to do these things. Out of His holiness, His hatred towards sin. We're so fortunate that His anger towards sin has been diluted down with the mercy and grace of God. We're living in this time of grace and this time of mercy. But that doesn't mean God is closing His eyes to sin. He still hates sin. And His judgment towards sin is going to come. And it's going to be if you remember last week, we heard about the cup of His wrath and it referred to it as the undiluted cup of His wrath. And I believe what it's saying to us, it's not going to be diluted with His grace and mercy. It's going to be the pure wrath of God judging sin and those who have rejected Jesus Christ. In chapter 14, you may remember, I hope you remember, it talked about the cup of His wrath. Then towards the end of chapter 14, it talked about the sickle being taken out and there was a harvest, actually a dual harvest. And that harvest was of judgment, not a harvest of the saints, a harvest of judgment. So we had the cup of wrath, 
the sickle and the judgment of the harvest of those that have rejected Christ. And then lastly, it finished up with that scene that I mentioned. The grapes of the earth, the evil of the earth, the fruit of the earth, the fruit of man versus God's fruit is being put into the wine press and crushed. And it's a picture of what's going to take place at Armageddon when the victory is finally won. You also might remember back in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, it talked about three woes. We were up to the fourth trumpet. All of, all of this judgment, all of this stuff had been going on that was horrible. And then it says there's three woes to come. Woe, woe, and woe. And we saw the first two woes and the fifth trumpet was opened. And if you recall, when that, came, when that was opened, it, was with, it says that's when the open the abyss, the pit, was opened. And the demonic forces from the pit came out and they were given five months to torment humanity with pain and suffering. With one stipulation, they couldn't kill anybody. You couldn't even kill yourself. It says men would desire to die and they can't even die. For five months, the first woe. And then in the sixth trumpet, it is open, it is the, the second woe comes. And you may remember it was the release of these four angels that have been stationed as part of God's plan for that very moment in time. And they lead a, mil, a 200 million horsemen army. And this time, a third of mankind is killed. That was the second woe. That was the sixth trumpet. And now the seventh trumpet is being opened and the seventh trumpet contains what we call the seven vials or the seven bowls of God's wrath. The third woe, the final woe, and it's horrible. So we're going to look at chapter 15. I'm going to read a verse or two. We're going to talk about it a little bit and then move on. In chapter 15, verse 1, it says, And I saw another sign in heaven. Who's seeing these signs? John on the island of Patmos. And now the scene is back to heaven. We went from earth to heaven at different times, but this now he, he's seeing into heaven. And it says he sees into heaven a great and marvelous sign. And seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. A sign, if we remember from what we've talked about, a sign is something that gives us a picture of a truth to be expounded upon. We've seen a few different signs. We saw the sign in chapter 12 of the dragon representing Satan. We saw the sign of the woman representing Israel. And then it went on and taught about these things. Here he's seeing a sign in heaven and he refers to it as great and marvelous. Great in effect. Marvelous in the sense of it was like, I can hardly believe this. I can hardly believe what I'm seeing and what I'm about to see. Not that it was, wow, this is really cool. Not that kind of marvelous. Great, and it grabbed his attention. It was something I couldn't ignore. And he's saying this as he's beginning to look into the seventh trumpet with the seven bowls, the seven vials of judgment. And as we've mentioned many, many times, and you've probably noticed if you've been reading, the number seven shows up an awful lot. And we've talked about how seven seems to be God's number of perfection or completeness. And when we see these seven bowls, it's coming. 
the completing, the perfection of the ultimate end of His plan before Jesus returns. This is what's taking place with these seven bowls. And just a sidebar, it's interesting because we sometimes don't like to talk about the anger of God or the wrath of God. And in the Bible, there seems to be two primary words that are translated anger or wrath. The word for anger is orge, and it's used often throughout the New Testament. And it's used, and it, what it really means when it's being used, it's showing an attitude or a disposition towards sin. It's a mindset. God is angered towards sin. His attitude or His disposition towards it is anger, but He is a God of mercy and grace. We're living in this time of grace. We don't see it as wrath. And the word for wrath is stumas. And it's only used 11 times in this whole New Testament, and it's used 10 times in the book of Revelation. And it differs, differs from the word that is translated anger in this way, where the word for anger is representing or talking about a disposition or attitude towards sin in particular. When we get to the stumas, it goes beyond an attitude. And it's an expression of God's anger. If you read it in a lexicon, it'll say an expression of God's anger or God's holiness in action or His wrath overflowing in righteous indignation. When we read the word wrath, that's translated wrath, God's now went from attitude to action. And the wrath of God has been held back, even to this day for us, towards sin. But a day is coming when it's going to be released in an undiluted form completely. And we say it is finished at the end of chapter 1. The wrath of God is finished when the seventh bowl is poured out. It has been finished. His judgment is finished and that is when Jesus is going to return and the final victory is going to be accomplished. It is finished. Let's look at verse 2. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. We looked at this sea of glass a couple other of times and it seems to be a representation of the holiness and the purity of God when he sees this scene in heaven. Only this time, it's mixed with fire. And fire typically represents judgment. It appears that it's, what we're seeing here is this scene of God's holiness and purity, but even in, mixed in with it, part of His holiness is His wrath, His judgment. And what's really cool to me is who we see standing there. It says it's those that have come out of the tribulation victorious. In other words, these would be the people that have been martyred during the tribulation. And we read last week how God said that their works will go with them. In other words, their works will be rewarded. And I wouldn't make hard theology about what I'm going to tell you, but there are many who think that part of our reward in heaven is going to simply be our proximity to the throne of God in our worship. And there are those who would say what we see here are those that are victorious. 
They're victorious over the beast. They never worshipped the beast and they refused to take the mark of the beast and therefore they were murdered for their faith. Their blood was shed. And here John in this vision is seeing them before the throne of God on this sea of glass mixed with fire, worshipping God with musical instruments. An amazing picture of the saints that were martyred. You may recall in the previous chapters when we heard those martyrs that were pictured in Revelation as being under the altar in heaven. And one of the things they cried out to God was this, How long? How long, O Lord, until You get revenge or retribution for the blood that has been shed? Well, it's coming. Real quick. The retribution is on its way. Verses 3 and 4, we see a couple of songs and it looks like it's made clear that it's two different songs, but it looks like they've been just kind of combined into one. And it says this, And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, So those who are standing there, these tribulation martyrs are standing there and they're singing these words, Great and marvelous are their works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear the Lord and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy acts have been revealed. Thy righteous acts have been revealed. Again, we're seeing this emphasis that even the wrath of God that is being pouring out, poured out in the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and now in the seven bowls is coming out of his righteousness. They are righteous acts out of his holiness. The song of Moses, those of you that remember the song of Moses back in Exodus chapter 15, they, Moses was leading his people out of Egypt, delivering, and you will see a lot of similarities. You want to do a little side study? Go back and look at the, the plagues in Egypt when God set the people free and delivered them. And then look at the bowls of God's wrath that are going to take place now to lead to the ultimate deliverance of Jesus Christ coming back to earth. Lots of similarities there. And at that time, Moses had just been passed through the Red Sea with all of Israel. And they got to the other side, and we all know the story probably that the waves came down and the armies and the chariots and the horses and soldiers of Pharaoh were all destroyed. And they sang this song demonstrating or emphasizing the power and the faithfulness of God. The power of God. He could control the sea. He is faithful because He promised to deliver His people Israel. And then there's the song of the Lamb that's being talked about here. And the song of the Lamb, when we think of the song of the Lamb, it emphasizes the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. The faithfulness of His promise that there will be a way for all of us to be restored to right relationship with God through His Son Jesus. And as you look at this short song, again, I don't want to get legalistic or too dogmatic here, but notice this is a fabulous example of a worship song. Notice who it's all about. You don't see the word I or me in there anywhere, do you? Depending on your translation, it may say thy, but it's you and your all the way through it. 
They are worshiping God. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. And there definitely needs to be that aspect of our worship where it is all about Him. I understand with our worship songs we do talk about us at times, but usually we hope that when we're singing about us, it's what He's done for us, what He's doing for us, and what we're doing in response to Him. But reality, worship really is about God. It's about Him. Verse 5. After these things, I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. I just want to say as I'm reading it, what he's talking about here is the Holy of Holies. When we think of the Old Testament temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where the veil was, and only the high priest could go through. And he's saying here, after these things I looked, and the temple, the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. And when you read through this, don't get confused. It's like different attributes of these seven bowls. Sometimes it's called the seven bowls. Sometimes it's called the seven plagues. It's the same thing. And he says, the angels that had the seven plagues came out of the temple and they were clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels even golden bowls full of the wrath of God. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven, seven angels were finished. The temple was opened. The Holy of Holies was opened. If you recall in the crucifixion of Jesus, the veil was torn when Jesus' death was accomplished. And that was a picture for us that we as Christians have direct access to God. We don't need to go through anybody else. We don't need to go through a priest or a pastor or anybody else. Access was opened. The veil was torn into the Holy of Holies. And what was in the Holy of Holies with the ark and, and what was in the ark, it's all really pictures of His faithfulness, of His glory, and of His holiness. And we will all have access directly into it. Only here, we're seeing something else. What we're seeing here is its temple is being opened so that the judgment of God, the wrath of God, can come forth. It is filled with the smoke of His glory and His power, but no one can go in until it's finished. At this time, it's too late. No one can go in to the temple. The bowls. I think it's worth noting the bowls. If you look at a bowl, one thing about a bowl, if I got a bowl full of milk and I have a jar full of milk and we could have the same quantity of milk in each of those containers, but I said, now we're going to see which empties quickest. Which one's going to empty quickest? I can take that bowl and tip it and it's over just like that. I think that's one of the significance of the bowls of God's wrath. It is going to come suddenly and it's going to come quickly and they're going to come one after another. It's as if those angels are going to have those bowls and they're going to pour one, another, and another, and another until the seventh bowl is poured and it is finished. The suffering and the agony is going to be unbelievable. And there is nothing the Savior of the world, the Antichrist, can do about it. And that's something we need to remember is this judgment is being poured out. The Antichrist, 
the beast from the sea, if you recall. The Antichrist comes on the world scene and he comes as what? The Savior. He's going to come and make peace and prosperity for all who follow him. And of course, it's all a lie and it's all a deception and it's revealed. But when we get to the judgment and the wrath, there's nothing he can do about it. He had his false prophet and they did a few cool things to, to deceive the people. But now there's nothing that can be done about it. Smoke filling the temple, His glory, His holiness, the power of God. And it again reminds me of just going back into chapter 14, the undiluted wrath of God being poured out. No mercy. No restraint. Prelude to chapter 16. And chapter 16 starts with these words in verse 1. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. The loud voice, probably God, pouring, to giving permission, sending them forth, making it clear to us, this is the judgment of a holy God being sent out to the earth. In verse 2, we get to the angels. And we're going to go through these pretty quickly. First angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. A loathsome. These are such colorful words, I had to look them all up. Loathsome, evil, injurious. It brings a crippling effect. A loathsome, malignant looks at what is painful, destructive, and even vicious. And of course, for most of us in our culture today, we think of a cancerous tumor. And the description, a loathsome, malignant, sore, meaning boil or ulcer. This is what that first one is poured out on the people. And before they can hardly respond to this, one thing I should go back and say. Notice when you read that verse, it says, pour out his bowl into the earth and it became loathsome upon the men who had the mark of the beast. It clarifies for us. Without getting into a long rabbit trail, I believe at this time there will still be some on the earth who have accepted Christ. We know and I believe completely that the 144,000 are still there. And it appears that somehow, I believe more than appears, I believe it's clear God's protection is over them as these wrath, the wrath is being poured out. That's why I think it specifies on the men, the men who rejected Him. So for you post-trib rapture people, there's a glimpse of hope. It's poured out. The second bowl comes. And the second angel poured out the bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. Poured into the river, or poured into the sea. Everything dies. If you remember before, a third of the things died, but now everything in the sea is dead. And whatever has been poured into, whatever is dumped into it, appears to be like the blood of a dead person. God's judgments, again, are righteous. The third bowl is poured into the rivers and springs. 
The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of waters, and they became blood. First the seas, the salt water, now all of the fresh water. All of the drinking water is contaminated by this blood. And it reminds me and takes me back to when those martyrs under the altar were crying out to God, How long, O Lord, till you revenge the shedding of our blood by these bloodthirsty, evil, demonic people? And here we are. He's giving them all the blood they could possibly ever want. The seas turned red like blood and the fresh water is turned red like blood. The fourth bowl, verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. And it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Pour down on the sun. If you remember previously, the sun was, the days were shortened. The sun was darkened. And here it's like, Whatever it means, and again, I don't get hung up on the how, but I get hung up on the what. It's like somebody had a thermostat for the sun. Maybe God moves it closer to the earth. I don't know what happens. But it says the intensity of the heat scorches men. And again, they can't be destroyed. They just have to endure and suffer this. And notice the result. And we see this throughout Revelation. There is no doubt that they understood directly where all of this was coming from. It was coming from God and they understood it. And we see that clearly here because of what? They decided to not repent and they blaspheme God. Can you imagine the suffering that's going on so far just to get to this point in the fourth bowl and yet they're calling God names and blaspheming God and rejecting God. Talk about a hardness of heart. They're rejecting Him. And they knew full well when it, where it came from. It almost seems implied, although I personally would doubt it, it almost seems implied that maybe they could have changed direction. But I personally believe by this point their hearts were so hardened there was no going back. The fifth bowl. The fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The kingdom is darkened. It's poured out on his throne. It may have been a particular throne that he was sitting on where he built up his his place to reign, but I believe probably more likely we're talking about the whole system that the Antichrist had developed. The religious system, the economic system, all of it that he had developed. And it's like darkness comes. Total, absolute darkness. It's so intense. And notice it mentions the sores from the earlier bowl 
one of the things that makes me think it was coming just one after the other and they couldn't recover from one and the next one came and the next one came and now all of a sudden the heat is intense doesn't say anything about brightness because now it's dark. And they are in such agony and such pain that they're gnawing their tongues in pain and agony. And there's nothing the Antichrist, nothing their Savior could do about it. There's only one Savior, it's Jesus Christ. There's only one way to avoid all of this and that's accepting Jesus Christ as one's personal Lord and Savior. There's no other way. They nod in their tongues because of the pain, the gnashing and grinding and gnawing. You can only imagine how intense it must be. And they blasphemed the God of heaven and did not repent of their sins. When a hardened heart gets so hardened, there is nothing that can change it. In the midst of this, they are blaspheming God. And as I said before, they are so totally aware. You know what? There will be no agnostics or atheists at this time. They're all going to know. The whole world's going to know. The Scriptures tells us that the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before Him. It can either be voluntary or it's going to be compelled. And the, com the compelling of it is horrendous. No atheists. We're going to stop there for today because I want to elaborate on the last two a little bit more than time would allow. While going through it, all of the judgments are a little challenging and sometimes difficult to follow and understand. But it really is impossible to miss the point that this judgment is coming out of the holiness of God. And that's I really want to stress that. He is holy and He is righteous. And sin has always angered Him. But grace and mercy have held back the fullness of His wrath. But now at this time in history, the fullness of His wrath is being poured out undiluted by mercy, undiluted by grace. The world is being brought to justice by the righteousness of God. And as I said earlier, there is no escape for this divine judgment. When it gets to this point, it's over. For all of us, if we've not made that decision in our own hearts and minds, there's still time. Thank God. There's still time to make a choice. There's still time to repent. But remember this. There is a day that it'll be too late. You know, I remember when I was younger, I was younger. And I remember being younger and people who were older, now I'm older, would say things like, don't wait. And I would say things like, yeah, it's easy for you to say. You're already old. You've already had all that fun. I got plenty of time. It's time for me to have some fun. And it's interesting how I defined fun at that time as sin because I knew most of it was sin. I wasn't saved, but I knew enough. Don't be deceived by that lie. We are 2,000 years, roughly, later than when this was written. 
There were many prophecies that had to be fulfilled before this could actually come to pass. They've been fulfilled. This could begin any day. If you're an unbeliever, you could wake up one morning or in the middle of the afternoon and all of a sudden if your theology lines up with mine, a whole bunch of people are gone because the church is raptured. One of the restraining forces of evil on the earth today is the church because the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. And if you've heard the gospel message shared and the rapture comes and you missed it, it's too late. I've said this before and I want to reiterate it again because people will say, do you think people can get saved in during the tribulation? And my answer is yes. But because of the Scripture in Thessalonians that I've shared a number of times, I believe that those who have heard the Gospel message do not get a second chance. It would only be those who have not heard the true Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a siren going off warning us of impending Judgment. Are we motivated enough? Do we believe it enough to allow the Holy Spirit to use us to evangelize and share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people? That's what we're called to do. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You and Your grace and Your amazing mercy have given us this book, Your Word. You are speaking to us Your Word through one of your disciples, John. And I thank you that it's relevant for today. More relevant than it's ever been. And I pray you would give us grace if there are some here who have not received Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray, God, that you would give them the grace to accept the truth of their own sinful nature and accept Jesus Christ as the only sacrifice that could pay the price for our sins and surrender their life to Him. Lord, I pray that You would stir up in each one of us that evangelistic gift. That we would be bold in sharing the good news of the Gospel. But with our boldness, there would be wisdom and it would all be wrapped in Your love. God, that we would go be able to go to a world that needs to know Jesus and Your favor would be upon us. I pray as we go our way this morning, God, You would go with us go before us. God, give us, give us the ability to see and discern those opportunities that will be presented this week to share something about Jesus, His amazing love. Pray you watch over us, protect us, and keep us safe. And we, all, we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.